friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're tackling career ambitions, discussing the pros and cons of parenthood, or optimizing our microbiomes. Today, we have a fresh and shiny new edition of our popular Ask the Doctor series. The Ask the Doctor series was born around the idea that there are world-class functional medicine experts out there who are sharing incredible information, but they can be expensive and often impossible to get appointments with. This series is about making their wealth of knowledge as accessible to as many people as possible, to help as many people as possible. But please know that it's just one doctor's opinion and this podcast should never substitute for in-person care. If you have any questions about how anything you hear about here could impact your own very specific body or interact with any conditions you have or drugs or supplements you might be taking, please reach out to your own doctor. Today's episode is all about the immune system, which if you are anything like me is something you've probably thought about more in the last two years than maybe you ever thought that you would. I was excited to welcome Dr. Heather Mode to the podcast. Dr. Mode is an allergist and immunologist, integrative and functional medicine physician who received her medical degree from Tulane Medical School in New Orleans before doing her residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in allergy and immunology at the Montefiore Albert Einstein Medical Center in New York City. She completed a fellowship in integrative medicine at the Arizona Center of Integrative Medicine, is a certified practitioner through the Institute for Functional Medicine, and now is the owner and medical director of the Mode Center for Functional Medicine, a virtual functional medicine practice based in Virginia. Her new book, The Immunotype Breakthrough, Your Personalized Plan to Balance Your Immune System, Optimize Health, and Build Lifelong Resistance is available wherever books are sold. On this episode, we dive into all things immune health, including things that you might not necessarily think of as tied to the immune system, like allergies and inflammation. We talk about the exact test to find out the health of your immune system, how much of our immune health is genetic and how much is environmental, why your immune health and inflammation are so connected, the best ways to keep from getting sick, and an exact protocol for what to do if you do get sick, how your microbiome impacts your immune system and how to keep it healthy, how to rebuild your microbiome after taking antibiotics, what causes allergies and how to lessen your allergy symptoms naturally, what causes autoimmune diseases and how to stack the deck away from acquiring one, what we currently know about treating and preventing long COVID, her thoughts on the trendy immune support things like vitamin C, dry brushing, lymphatic massage, raw garlic, saunas, elderberry, oregano oil, olive leaf extract, and so much more. I wanted this to be as comprehensive and actionable as possible, and I hope you find wonderful nuggets in it that help you feel your very best. If you know anyone who might benefit from the information that Dr. Mode shares in this episode, please, please, please send them a link. I personally have already sent a copy of the rough file to a number of my friends who are struggling with long COVID, and I'm also following her allergy protocol. There is just so much useful stuff in here, and I don't want anyone out there to miss out on something that might fundamentally change their day-to-day -day quality of life. If you love the Ask the Doctor format, definitely check out the earlier ones. We've covered hormones, our gut, happiness, anxiety, longevity, dental health, and more. I made a single page on lizmoody.com that has links to all of them. So just Google Liz Moody, Ask the Doctor, and it should come right up. Okay, let's get into all things immune with Dr. Heather Mode. All right, Dr. Mode, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to talk about all things immune systems. 
I am as well. Thanks for having me. Okay. So I want to start off. I love the part in the book where you were like, you talked about how we get screened for all sorts of things like cardiovascular health or we get colonoscopies. Is there any way that we can check and see what the health of our immune system is? Are there tests that we can ask for or like things we can look out for at home? Absolutely. So there's no one test. So it's not like you go to the gynecologist and you get a pap smear, right? So it's not like that. But there are certain blood tests that are pretty easy to get from your primary care doctor that I check with all of my patients. And I think it's, they're really great sort of hints. Now they're not always going to show up as abnormal, but there are a few things that if they are abnormal, they're a really good thing to look for. So my favorite is something called C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is basically, it's sort of a general marker of inflammation. It's very good for people who have like diabetes and heart disease that may not know that they have. So that's a good thing to look for. But I've seen it elevated in people with autoimmune disease, gut problems, chronic hives. So it's a good marker. It correlates with the elevation of certain inflammatory cytokines, which we might talk about later, but those are sort of inflammatory chemicals that our immune cells use to talk to each other. High C-reactive protein is bad. Is there like, will our will a normal typical doctor have a sense of when C-reactive protein is too high or is there a number we should look for? Yeah. So you really want it to be close to one. <laughs> so not much more than that. I think the range at LabCorp and Quest and some of those uh, laboratories is, I think they say that below three is okay. I really like it close to one, but I've seen people with CRPs, we call them CRPs of 20, 25, 30, and that's really out of range. So that's a good one. Okay. What else are we looking for? So another one is actually ferritin, which technically also measures how much iron you have stored in your body, but ferritin goes up with inflammation. So they call it an acute phase reactant, which basically means, again, it goes up during inflammation. So sometimes if you measure a ferritin level and it's excessively high, that can mean that there's some inflammation going on in the body. So that's another one I look for. Other ones, I would say there is a marker called homocysteine, which is also a marker. It's not specifically of inflammation, but it does indicate an inflammatory process going on in the body. And that can be genetic, actually. And it's a really good thing to screen for because it's associated with heart disease. So those are three big ones. Of course, you can just get a complete blood count, which is what a lot of doctors order anyway. And if your white blood cell count is elevated, over normal, that might mean you have an infection or chronic inflammation. It was interesting. So you mentioned the one that was genetic, and I did want to talk about what factors cause somebody to have a great or less great immune health. How much of it is genetic, environmental, some combination of the two, or something else entirely? (laughs) So I would say very little is genetic. With the exception of congenital disorders that you're born with, there's very few diseases that are 100% or really highly genetic. You can, of course, inherit risk factors or predilections for a disease in your family, but it's really how you live your life because genes can turn on and off and they get turned on and off by what we eat, you know, different vitamins and minerals, toxins, stress. We have a lot of control over how our genetics plays out. A lot of people do sort of lean on that or they'll blame their family members for the fact that they have diabetes or heart disease. And there may be some specific risks, but overall, I would say it's mostly environmental. 
Okay, so let's talk about the fact that you've now cited heart disease and diabetes and things like that. And for me, I wouldn't have considered those part of our immune health. Like for me, immune health is autoimmune conditions, allergies, and if I'm getting sick when I'm around sick people. So what do you consider part of the immune system? And it's funny because those are sort of the things that I talk about in my book, but biggest thing that our immune system does, or that's, you know, sort of the crux of it all is inflammation. So it's responsible for inflammation, which of course, when it's well-directed is going to help snuff out bacteria, kill virally infected cells, kill cancer cells. So obviously we want inflammation to occur, but most of the diseases that we see in this country that, you know, is killing the bulk of us, you know, so diabetes, heart disease, things like that. That's all due to in chronic inflammation too. For example, diabetes is due to excess blood sugar. Blood sugar actually damages our red blood cells and also our arteries and veins and all of our, you know, vasculature. And that's why diabetics end up losing legs and, you know, losing their light, their eyesight and having kidney problems. It's all due to the fact that the little tiny blood cells get basically damaged and turn into like shards of glass. And same with heart disease. It definitely drives a lot of the inflammation that occurs in our heart vessels too. So yeah, it's funny because a lot of people don't really think of that as that that's our immune system doing that, but it is doing it and it's sort of misdirected, but it's because of how we're living our lives, right? That's so interesting. Okay, so let's talk about inflammation because you obviously talk about in the book, it has a really large impact on your immune system. So I think inflammation is very widely misunderstood. What causes it? How does it impact the immune system? Just like tell me about inflammation generally. So inflammation occurs several different ways, but it it is part of what our immune system does. Like, as I said, let's just take an example of, let's just say an injury, right? Obviously, if we didn't have an active immune system, if we got a cut or broke our foot or whatever, we would die. (laughs) So what happens is when we injure ourselves for whatever reason, we have a response of our immune cells. There's certain immune cells that come to the area. They sort of shoot off flares, just like if you got into a car accident, right? You shoot off flares in the form of these chemicals, usually cytokines. They cause blood vessels to open up and dilate, which brings more fluid to the area. That's what brings heat and swelling. So if you sprain your ankle, everyone knows what that feels like. Um, Pain, And it also brings in a whole other sort of cavalry of other white blood cells to to come to the area and to either kill things. So for example, if there's a bacterial infection, viral infection, they start to do a lot of the killing. This creates sometimes some collateral damage to the tissue around it. And so that then has to be cleaned up. So there's this sort of whole inflammatory response that happens, but then there's a resolution. And I explain this in the book as almost like when you have a forest fire, right? You end up obviously putting out the inflammation, the fire, but a lot of times you're damaging the area as you're doing it. So you can have other areas that get damaged that then have to be repaired over time. So that's sort of the way to think about it is that there's this collateral damage with inflammation. And unless you then repair, or if you never get rid of the initial cause of the inflammation, 
it's like you're smoldering, right? You're going along and you're having chronic tissue damage, which is going to keep recruiting your immune cells. It's going to keep turning on that inflammatory response. And so that's how we get into this problem of chronic inflammation. Okay. So the examples, it's not like if you cut yourself too many times, you're going to end up with chronic inflammation though, right? Like what are the things that are causing the fires that would actually lead to chronic inflammation that you find? I would say some of the biggest things are what we eat because we're constantly eating, right? Every day, most people are taking in food and drink. And a lot of the things that we eat are damaging. For example, sugar, right? So obviously we can all handle a little bit of sugar, but eventually over time, if we are not able to absorb all that sugar and our insulin goes up and we become close to diabetes, then we start having damage. And so that's going to cause some problems. The other issue would be something like kinds of inflammatory fats. So say something like trans fats or partially um, hydrogenated fats, things like that, or industrial seed oils, those are all very pro-inflammatory. And then there's also just not getting enough of the good stuff in, right? So maybe not getting enough antioxidants from our food because we constantly need antioxidants to sort of put out fires and to repair cells and things like that. It's not like we have too many of the acute issues that our inflammatory system was designed to deal with. It's more like we're making the inflammatory system malfunction essentially by treating it in the wrong way, kind of. Is that right? Exactly. And that's why it's so important to think about just the choices that you make on a daily basis. Over time, they add up because if we're constantly distracting our immune system with this sort of really useless inflammation, then it really can't do its job well. You know, you can't be expected to have a really good robust response to something like cancer, getting rid of cancer cells or to a viral infection, if you're chronically dealing with just like stupid inflammation, basically, you know. Are there any non-dietary causes of stupid chronic inflammation? (laughs) So one of my favorites, which I talk about a lot, is sleep. Yeah. From the book, you seem to be a big fan of sleep. (laughs) Big fan of sleep. I learned probably the most writing that chapter. And I thought I knew a decent amount about sleep, but I really um, learned a lot. So a couple things that happen during sleep is, A, it's actually a time of a lot of inflammation occurring in a good way, meaning that our immune system is really active at that time, killing viruses, creating antibodies. It's actually, um, I cited that If you don't get a really good night's sleep after you get a vaccine, you can actually reduce your production of antibodies to the vaccine, which if you're going to get a vaccine, you want it to work as as well as possible. So don't stay up late. So that's really important. So we have like this sort of big pro-inflammatory boost in the middle of the night, and that correlates with melatonin. Melatonin helps us do that. And that's particularly in the early stages of sleep, right? Like your first few hours when you're in deep sleep. Yes, exactly. So a lot of people who chronically go to bed, say after like one o'clock in the morning, they can miss out on that. So it is true that you get more deep sleep earlier in the evening. And so you really want to try to get to bed, you know, by like 10 or something, if you can, at least most of the time. I actually like love that fact because I have an aura ring and sometimes I'm like, oh, I like slept so bad, but then my deep sleep is still really high because I did get to bed early. So like the deep sleep happened early on and I'm like, oh, okay, like I'm doing my body's good work, even if I didn't get quite as good of a night's sleep as I wanted to, you know? 
So that's really important. And the other thing too, is that we do, again, we do some repair while we're sleeping. So we have this whole system in our brain called the glymphatic system. It's been compared to like a washing machine for the brain. (laughs) So what happens is the brain slightly uh, shrinks while you sleep and it allows this cerebral spinal fluid to like run through these channels. And literally it's like taking away like the debris and the cobwebs and the waste and flushing it out of your brain. And so everyone knows what it feels like to like pull an all nighter or like just not get good sleep. You literally can't think straight. You feel foggy. So if you think about that over time, that's really inflammation and toxins that have built up and haven't really been removed. And so if you do that to yourself over and over and over again, you're going to have more chronic inflammation in your brain. And the great thing about sleep is it's free. Although I do find like, just as a small caveat, I'm a person who sometimes struggles with sleep. And I think a lot of health work is talking to the people who are maybe deprioritizing sleep. And if they just made it more of a priority in their life, they would reap all these benefits. And I think a lot of doctors like yourself are like, please just, if you can prioritize it do. But I think sometimes that can serve the effect of scaring people who are prioritizing it, but maybe aren't getting the quality of sleep they would like to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no absolute guarantee for quality sleep. And I absolutely know that people have problems with insomnia. And especially in my age group, you know, (laughs) women who are perimenopausal, I mean, gosh, it's like waking up in the middle of the night because the hormones and whatever, and it's not great. What we tell people is there's a lot of tips and tricks out there. And if you're not trying to use them, if you're not doing them and you're not prioritizing, that's like, that's an easy sort of thing to start with. And, you know, at least sort of maximize it to the point that you can do as much as you can. Do as much as you can. And then obviously there's going to be so much other information we're going to cover that you can load up on that too, if the sleep isn't working out, you know? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different things that you can take. I mean, and and nobody's perfect, obviously. We all have our our issues and our, (laughs) our problems specifically, but, you know, that's a really good one to start with. Are there like ways that we can tell if we have chronic inflammation? Is there a test we can ask for? Is like, can I look down at my body somehow and see? Not really. The tests that I told you about, you know, you can always ask for those. So the same ones to test for like immune health are also sort of testing for inflammation as well. Yes. So both the ferritin, the C-reactive protein, not so much the homocysteine, but I would say those two are good. I would say things like signs or symptoms When we think of inflammation, we think of pain, obviously. So how about like GI pain, right? So people who have chronic issues with cramping or bloating or things like that, there's usually some inflammation going on. Other things would be arthritis. Any sort of joint pain is a big one. And then um, skin rashes, maybe not like a, you know, one little skin rash, but if you have like a full body rash, like I said, chronic hives sometimes or things like that can be indicative of something going on in the body that's showing up on the skin. So things like that, you can, brain fog obviously can be a sign of, uh, of inflammation. So those would be signs and symptoms to look for. So we're taking out our trans fats. We're trying to get a really good amount of sleep. Is there one more little sort of action step that you could offer us to add in if we feel like we're dealing with chronic inflammation to kind of get that under control? It really depends on your habits. So (laughs) you'd have to ask yourself this question. Are you a person who has a lot of stress and anxiety in your life and is like a go, go, go person? (laughs) Sure am. (laughs) (laughs) And do you prioritize 
some sort of downtime for yourself? Do you do any sort of self-regulating activities, anything for stress management? Because some people have a lot of inflammation, have a lot of issues, but they'll tell me, I'm really not that stressed. I don't have a stressful job. I have a great relationship. I don't stress out about money. I don't really feel stressed, et cetera. They might want to focus somewhere else. So I would say that stress, I would say, is the overarching problem that I see and probably more common. (laughs) I'm like, who are those people? Who are the people who are not stressed about anything and how can I become them? I know, exactly. That is true. I think that is somewhat, there is a gene that, you know, (laughs) does make us more likely. Okay, so I don't have that one. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, that's something that as you obviously know, it's a practice, right? But there's lots of things that we can do to try to re-regulate our autonomic nervous system and our adrenals because we do know that that also significantly impacts how our immune system works. Do you have any favorites in your life? Like what do you do for stress management? So I would say I do journaling. So like gratitude journaling, because I like to write and it just helps me feel better and helps me think about things. The other thing I do is guided meditation. I really, really like to do a guided meditation and some deep breathing. I would say those are the biggest ones because they're things that I can do every day. And I feel like, you know, yes, I love being out in nature. Yes, I love taking a nice warm bath, but I can't always do that. I can't always, and I can't do it in the minute that I need it. And the thing about these stress management techniques is I find it has to be something that you can like, you can do pretty simply, doesn't take too much time and that you can pull out when you need it. But the key is associating in our brain that stress impacts our inflammation and thus our immune health. So taking care of our stress isn't indulgent in any way. It actually has a real impact on our physiological state. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's amazing. And this was not something that was really taught until, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. I mean, I never learned much about that in medical school. We sort of heard about like the mind-body connection, but it was like, you know, whatever. Whereas, you know, now it's like a given. Everyone knows. I mean, people don't always follow the best, (laughs) their best advice, but we know that there's associations with childhood trauma, any sort of adverse events, growing up, divorce, loss of life, financial loss, anything like that. Um, can correlate significantly with the onset of a disease because chronic cortisol over time, which is our stress, one of our stress hormones, can sort of flip from being anti-inflammatory because it's technically anti-inflammatory to becoming pro-inflammatory or allowing and allowing some weaknesses in our immune system. So over time, it's super important to keep it in mind because it's something that you may not have control over all the stressors in your life. I mean, we don't, but you do have control over how you respond to them. Yeah. It's one of the things I like about meditation and mindfulness practices that it's less like you need to go be a Zen monk somewhere and not experience stress. It's more about how do you respond when faced with stress and how can you give yourself the tools to respond really positively in those situations? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens maybe five years ago because I was traveling a lot and I wanted an alternative to green smoothies when I was on the go. 
I actually don't think that I've taken a trip without it since because it makes such a difference with travel constipation. I went from having constant gut problems on trips to being able to poop regularly and also still feeling energized even though when I travel, I'm usually mainlining croissants like five times a day. The energy element is the main reason I started to bring it into my daily life. As I'm sure you're very sick of hearing me say, I don't drink coffee or any type of caffeinated tea in the morning. It just messes with my anxiety too much and it makes me feel jittery and then crashy later. Now, when I feel sluggish in the morning, I mix a scoop of AG1 into water and chug it down. It's honestly like instant energy. And unlike caffeine, it's real energy that comes from flooding your body with nutrients, not stealing from your adrenals. So there's no jitters, no crash, nothing. Just this feeling of like vim and vigor and being ready to take on the day. AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it actually says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. I know you're going to ask how it tastes, and I'm going to be honest, I actually love it. It tastes a little sweet, a little grassy, and really bright and fresh. I'd say it's like a really good green juice. I've also come to crave the flavor simply because I associate it with making me feel so good. I've basically Pavlov'd myself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep one with me at pretty much all times, and the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, so let's talk about what people, at least I think about when I think about the immune system, which is getting sick. Is there anything special that you do to keep from getting sick, either in times where there's like a lot of disease going around, or maybe you're around sick kids a lot, or you travel like preventatively? I think, you know, besides the obvious things like washing your hands and that kind of thing is there is a decent amount of data for certain things that we take in nutrient wise. And so you can obviously increase this in your diet, but you can also take in certain supplements. So we know that specifically vitamin C and zinc are two of the ones that probably studied most rigorously for antiviral protection, or at least increasing our body's resistance to viruses. And then probably vitamin D would be the third. That's just sort of a, an amazing immune modulator. So those are sort of the three things I would say to focus on food-wise or supplement-wise. You know, there's also just things that are naturally antiviral. So for example, if you travel a lot or you're around lots of different germs, there's natural substances like uh, propolis, which is found in honeybee hives. 
You've probably seen that. There's pretty good evidence using that in like a spray form in the throat because, you know, we're constantly breathing in viruses all day long. It's not like we come across a virus like once a week or something. It's we're always breathing them in. It's whether or not our immune system is able to get rid of it before we feel that we have a problem going on, right? So we're constantly putting out fires. So propolis is a really great thing. I love to use that. You've obviously probably heard of elderberry syrup. Elderberry has a pretty, I mean, a really good safe track record to use in like the initial stages of a cold or or flu. So those are good things to just like have with you all the time and then, you know, use them either either preventatively or when you start feel like something's coming on. So let's talk about our microbiome for a second. If we wanted to keep our microbiome as healthy as possible to support our immune system, what should we be doing for that? So the first thing is to avoid certain things, right? So the obvious thing is antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics. So broad spectrum basically means that they kill a lot of things. So when I was growing up (laughs) in the dark ages now, we did not have these really super powerful broad spectrum antibiotics. You know, you got penicillin and, you know, maybe amoxicillin and they had a narrow range. So they killed certain kinds of bacteria, but, you know, we started getting bigger and better antibiotics that killed like everything, like really powerfully. So if you think about it, when you're say treating a, you know, sinus infection and you're taking an antibiotic for 10, 14 days, you're absorbing that throughout your whole body, not just in your sinuses. And it affects your your gut microbiome. And it's going to kill a lot of good along with the bad. So if you do this frequently throughout life, over time, you're going to get a, a reduction in diversity of these organisms. So the ones that are resistant, you know, talk about drug-resistant bacteria, are going to survive. And that's not a good thing for us, right? They're not, that's definitely not good. And then you're going to lose a lot of these beneficial bacteria that really do good things for our body. So that's number one is avoid antibiotics if unless you really, really have to take it. There's other drugs too that can be problematic. There's mixed messages on birth control pills sort of uh, causing problems within the microbiome. Things like acid blocking medications can be problematic. What are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can be problematic. And a lot of people pop those constantly. So that's the things to sort of like avoid. And then there's the things that we should take in. Number one, of course, is fiber because it's the food source for our microbes. And so they're not up like eating like lots of fats and proteins. They like fiber and starch. So lots of fibrous foods. That's the prebiotic stuff. Fermented foods. Again, it's a great natural source to introduce these beneficial a species like lactobacillus. So those that's like three things right there that you can, you know, avoidant and then things to eat. What about times that we have to take an antibiotic? Like I just got surgery um, in November, October. Oh my gosh, I'm like three months out. And I just got surgery and I had to take an antibiotic so that I wouldn't, I think, get a staph infection or something from the operating room. Is there anything that we can do to rebuild our microbiome after those times where antibiotics are necessary? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, you can do more of all the things that I just talked about like with the with the fiber and the fermented foods. You can also use probiotic supplementation. And there's actually been some good data on this for people who get traveler's diarrhea, because that also can cause uh, major imbalances in your microbiome that can come out, you know, sort of later down the line. 
is you can use probiotics for, you know, a few weeks. And I mean, I'm obviously, I'm a big fan of people taking probiotics in general, just based on the people that I see who a lot of them do have gut issues or autoimmune issues. And, you know, it's also just hard sometimes to, to get, you know, enough probiotics in our foods naturally, because not everybody loves to like drink kefir and eat sauerkraut and things like that. So it's a great thing to have in your arsenal. I took a lot of antibiotics as a kid. I had strep infections all the time. It was like I was a kid at the time where they're just doling out antibiotics like candy. Am I screwed now? Like, did I have a negative long-term effect because of that? You know, we don't know 100% for sure. We do know that you can really increase diversity and population. And I've seen that definitely in some of my patients who've come in and we've done a microbiome test and it'll read less than detectable limit for these really beneficial bacteria. Now, remember less than detectable limit, even though they're using like these are DNA tests, you would think, oh, wow, that really means that they're not there. It doesn't. It's amazing because, you know, a few months later, we'll repeat it and voila, they're back. They were just hiding. Sometimes they're hiding out. They're in just such small amounts that it's probably under the detectable limit, but they're still there. And then the other thing is that, like you just said, we pick up bacteria from everything. I mean, it's in soil, it's on our food and, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but we don't live in a sterile world. And just like when they always say for kids, like play in the soil, play in the dirt, that is one way that we do populate our microbiome. I always think about it when I'm hiking, like I love to... I love big rocks. This is like a weird thing about me. I like love big boulders and I like to like touch them and like feel their big boulder energy. And I'm always like, oh, I bet this is helping my microbiome from the dirt on these big rocks. Yeah. Yeah. That's really Maybe. cool. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a microbiome test. Is there anything that we should look out for that would signify that our gut health is impacting our immune health? In terms of symptoms? If we're like, man, I don't poop that regularly, or I have stomach aches all the time, does that mean my immune health is bad? So it can definitely impair your immune health. We don't know for sure, you know, on a per person basis, but I will tell you that almost every single person I see who say has an autoimmune disease has some history of GI issues of some sort. So They'll either say, you know, I was diagnosed with IBS or I have chronic loose stools or I'm constipated or after I eat, I bloat. There's some sort of GI complaint. I guess you could say that if you have any sort of chronic GI issue, most likely your microbiome is impaired and that is going to impair your, the ability for your immune system to be working at its optimized level. Okay. So that's a good sign that we might want to look into things further and maybe start trying some of these protocols that we've talked about, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So that's sort of like preventing getting sick. Let's talk about we're actually sick. What's your protocol personally or your protocol for your patients when you're in the thick of it? It's too late. You're sick. It's not too late. And you're talking maybe like an upper respiratory infection. Yeah. Like not like cancer, and we'll get into autoimmune conditions later, but literally just like an upper respiratory infection. So the things that I talked about, great things to do, obviously really upping your sleep, because again, sleep is a great time for our immune system to work. 
If you're dealing with a, say, sinus infection, you can just use physical means of reducing viral adhesions. You can do like a neti pot. I use sometimes neti pots with a little bit of colloidal silver. So silver on this is actually very antiviral, antibacterial, and it's safe. You're not really ingesting it. You're just sort of rinsing your nasal passages with it or your sinuses with it. And that, I, I really like to use that as well. So those are some big ones. And, and then of course, just, you know, not overstressing your body out. So a lot of people will continue, like they'll, you know, they'll go on vacation or they're, they'll drink alcohol or they'll do something like they'll start still training. They'll train for their half marathon, even though they have a sinus infection. And that's actually not good. It doesn't mean that you have to like lie around. Of course you can go walk, you can do some gentle exercise, but anything that's like super stressful to the body is not going to help you. (laughs) What about something like a sauna that's stressful to the body, but thought to be stressful in a positive way? Yeah. So saunas can be used in infection, but it works a little bit differently for strengthening our immune system or making it more resistant or resilient versus when we're actually sick. So one of the things it does, of course, is it raises your temperature, right? So raising your temperature when you're sick is a good thing. It's sort of like a fever. So if you're not having a fever, but you're you're sick, you can use saunas to increase your body temperature. And viruses and certain bacteria don't really like super high temperatures. So that's a good thing to do. Are you pro saunas for immune support generally, like preventatively as well? Absolutely. If you can buy your own infrared sauna or find a membership somewhere to use an infrared sauna, that's a great thing to do. Okay. I want to talk about allergies. This is a very personal issue for me. I have a cat whom I love very much and I am allergic to her, which makes me very sad. So allergies, why do some of us have them so badly and other people are totally fine? So we know that there is some genetics to that. However, what happens is at some point during our life, because some people have allergies when they're very young and some people can develop them as they get older. We know that underlying, there's this whole concept of called T-cell polarization, which I talk about in my book, which sounds really complex. But basically, we have this whole set of cells called T-cells, and part of them are what are called helper T-cells. And they do exactly that. They help out other immune cells. They help our B-cells make antibodies. They help our killer T-cells. But they all communicate with different Uh, cytokines, these chemical messengers, and they will recruit other immune cells. So for someone who has allergies, everyone knows who if they have allergies, you sneeze, you itch, you know, you have runny nose, all that kind of stuff, right? So a lot of this, a lot of the allergic response is through different cells that create histamine release. So mast cells release histamine. That's what makes you itchy and runny. There's a cell called the eosinophil, which also contains histamine. And then there's an antibody called IgE, which is what sort of activates the whole response. So in people who have allergies, they have a dominance of what they call T helper cell 2 or TH2 response. They get sort of stuck this way. We know that this can happen when there are certain underlying infections, maybe early on in life that caused them to sort of get polarized in this condition. Sometimes it's because they still have something going on. Toxins can actually activate this type of T cell 
Underlying parasites are sort of what it's there for in the first place. So sometimes that will activate it. People who have leaky gut or any sort of intestinal permeability and then develop some food sensitivities, that can also create this. So there's ways to sort of quell this response a little bit. You may not be able to get rid of it completely, but you can sort of reduce symptoms. Okay. I want to talk about how to quell it in a second, but just to clarify, is this for people who have like an internal, like a peanut allergy, as well as somebody who might have a hystemic response to tree pollen or cats or something like that? Same thing all around? Absolutely. It's the same reaction. It's just on a different scale, right? So there are obviously, and it's it's really because not 100% sure it probably why foods tend to cause severe, severe sort of life-threatening reactions. It's probably because we absorb it and eat it and break it down versus say a tree pollen, right? I mean, yes, people can get asthma and you can get, you know, pretty horrible symptoms, but usually they're not life-threatening. Okay. So how do we quell it? So different things. So you can take certain things that lower histamine reactions. And so there's this great, it's actually in the mint family, it's called Perilla. Uh, that can reduce histamine and it can also switch from this TH2 response to something called a TH1 response. And is that okay to take every day as like a preventative thing? Mm-hmm. Yep. There's another phytochemical called quercetin, which has been getting a lot of um, attention because it does, it's sort of like a master of many things. But quercetin is a natural antihistamine. There's also something called stinging nettle, which is another herb that's a natural antihistamine. You can have that in in, uh, teas and things like that, um, but you can just take it supplementally. Certain, I would say certain of the mushroom species can be really good too, because they can rebalance this TH2, what's called a TH2 dominance and sort of push it back towards another side, which is called TH1. So a lot of the medicinal mushrooms are really great to take as well. Do you have specific ones you like, like reishi or cordyceps or chaga? You know, I love them all, but I would say chaga is a really good one because it's also really good for your respiratory system. So I like that. Uh, And cordyceps, those two, probably uh, for people with allergies, really, really good. And are all of those safe to take regularly? Like I know a lot of people who suffer particularly from hay fever and things like that, or me and my dumb cat, that's a daily thing. It's not going to go away. So could I take those every day and be fine? You can, you can absolutely. Quercetin, usually I have people, if they do have seasonal allergies, I'll have them just start. It takes a little while to really, it's not something like, oh, I'm going to take my quercetin today. It's going to help. And I'd say that's the same with the nettle is you want to build that up over time. And so it's actually better to use it on a more regular basis. And how about the people who take like Claritin every day? Are you okay with something like that? I'm okay with it because its safety profile is really good. (laughs) If you, all things considered, antihistamines, at least this class in the past uh, the ones they've you know put out in the past 15, 20 years or so are pretty benign. And, you know, besides them maybe like drying you out a little bit, there's not a ton. I mean, there's rare cases of kids getting like depressed or having some sleep disturbances. And, but for the most part, you know, they're generally safe during pregnancy. You know, they have a really relatively low side effect profile. 
And because they're so entangled with our immune health and the T cells and all of that, that would mean that all of the other stuff that we've talked about would probably have a positive effect on mitigating allergies in the first place, right? Like working on our microbiome, our sleep, our stress, all of those sort of anti-inflammatory immune supporting things would be beneficial for allergies as well. Absolutely. Okay. So we've done allergies. We've done sort of like acute sickness. Let's talk about autoimmune diseases. What causes autoimmune diseases and what effect does an autoimmune disease have on our immune system? So we know for sure that underlying inflammation causes sort of is the the trigger, right, for autoimmune disease. And there's several different theories as to why it happens. And there definitely is a genetic component. We know for sure that autoimmune disease tends to be more common in women probably just how our immune system is. It is different than a man's. And part of that is because women carry a foreign object in them if they get pregnant, right? So yeah, I read somewhere that pregnancy is the number one cause of autoimmune disease in women. Is that true? It often will occur post-pregnancy. We'll see this sometimes with allergies too, which is funny. So if you think about it, right, like your baby if you have a baby, it's half your DNA and half your partner's DNA or whoever donated the sperm or whatever, right? So you can't attack that. So there are mechanisms in place that prevent damage to the fetus, even though it's not all your cells. So there's something in that sort of makes women at higher risk down the road for autoimmune disease. And so we do see that. But what happens is that there's usually some source of inflammation. So viruses and bacteria chronically are very common sources of the initial problem. And recently, there was a recent article out on Epstein-Barr virus and how Epstein-Barr virus, which most of us actually contract during childhood, so it's not a rare thing, but for some reason... There is a higher incidence of people in who have autoimmune disease that have a reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. So Epstein-Barr virus never leaves our body. It hides out just like the chickenpox virus does. It's in the herpes virus family and it hides away. And it specifically affects our immune cells. And that's why when you first get Epstein-Barr as a kid, you get something called mononucleosis or mono. And it's named that because it affects our monocytes, which are a type of white blood cells. So Long story short, viruses can do it. And some of the theories are that when we have whatever infection it is, whether it's a pathogen in our gut, whether it's a reactivated virus, whether it's things like Lyme, whether it's a toxin exposure, something that alerts our immune response to go to the area of inflammation or or the problem area. During that time, Immune cells can actually pick up little bits and pieces of our own tissue, take it back to the rest of the immune system, to the T cells, the B cells, part of what's called our adaptive immune system. And then they have to make a decision like, okay, are we going to, this is a bad thing. We have to attack it. But sometimes it gets mistaken and starts creating T cells and antibodies that are directed against our own tissue. And so that is one of the theories 
that sort of induces this autoimmunity. But there's so many autoimmune diseases that we know of. I mean, it just, it seems like the list keeps growing. I mean, we literally have autoimmune diseases, almost every tissue in our body. So it's pretty crazy and it's been increasing. We definitely see a significant increase in autoimmune disease over the past 50 years. And this is not because we're diagnosing them more. They're literally happening more. And so we know it's something that is in our environment. A lot of people are pointing at toxins, you know, as being something that's because it's foreign, because it causes tissue damage, that it increases the incidence of autoimmune disease. I definitely believe that for sure. How are you defining toxins? I would say it's anything, I guess technically toxins could be made by natural things. So technically like bacteria can make toxins, but I'm thinking more chemical man-made things. So it can be really anything that's chemical, plastics, you know, things like that, things that mimic estrogen or hormones. Um, and a lot of those are the, the plastics and the phthalates, but even heavy metals. So even things like mercury, arsenic, lead, the body sees those as not part of us, right? So those are not essential elements. It's not like magnesium, which is a metal that we need, or zinc. Lead does not play a role in our body. It's, a, it's actually bad, right? It causes damage. Same with arsenic. We don't have any sort of healthy need for those types of toxic metals. Okay. I just think the word toxins is very laden with emotion these days because just because something is natural, as you mentioned with like lead and arsenic, doesn't mean it's good for you. And just because something is man-made doesn't mean it's bad for you. And I do think that I like to define it because I think sometimes people can use the word toxin very blanketly and it's not actually useful then. No, I agree. I mean, for example, mold. Mold is a normal part of our environment and it's not all bad. I mean, people freak out about mold and mold can be problematic and not all molds cause toxins, but some of the natural toxins that they create can be really bad for us. And like you said, there are plenty of man-made things that don't really impact us that much and are pretty inert. So if we don't have an autoimmune disease yet, but we would like to take some actions to kind of stack the deck against acquiring one, what should we do? So I would say first is really tend to your gut because we know that that's where a lot of immune activation occurs, meaning that if we have integrity problems with the gut immune lining, you know, if you, if you took a microscope and you went down to, you know, your intestinal tract and you were inside the tube, right? So you're in there with all the microbes you can literally punch a hole through one cell layer and you're going to get into an area of all these basically large lymph nodes. It's this large collection of immune cells that are just hanging out, doing all sorts of great stuff, right? And immune cells, there are certain immune cells that can literally put their little fingers inside and sort of sample what's going by. So, but this is a tightly knit interface even though we're absorbing things, it's very controlled. But if we do damage to that lining, so we're doing things that might destroy these what are called tight junctions, that's going to allow things to pass very easily and quickly and maybe be let in when we weren't supposed to really let that thing in, whether it's a microbe, virus, or even a particle of, of food. So when we get that barrage, 
of things, the immune cells can, you know, they can sort of be like, okay, this is not good. Is this bad? Is this good? Is this friendly? Is this not friendly? And there can be a lot of confusion. And so, yes, tending to the gut. So avoiding the things that I talked about and really working on the microbiome is one of the first things that you can do. So you're talking about, it sounds like leaky gut, right? And one of the things that I always hear for leaky gut is bone broth is really helpful. So I'm curious if that is true. Is bone broth indeed helpful or if there's anything else you specifically recommend for either treating or preventing leaky gut? Yeah. I wouldn't say that's my number one go-to bone broth. You know, bone broth has a lot of collagen in it, which can be very nutritious and nourishing and reparative. So that would probably be the main thing. I mean, obviously it's got some vitamins and minerals and things like that. So there's nothing wrong with having bone broth. I think one of the things that we use a lot is a amino acid called L-glutamine. And L-glutamine is just, I mean, you can get it from your diet. It's like a very ubiquitous amino acid, but if you take larger doses of it, it can be very, very healing because it's what helps repair muscle tissue. And if you think about it, your intestine is really a muscle. It's a it's smooth muscle, but it's a it's a muscle tube. So that's really important. There's certain kinds of zinc. There's a specific zinc called zinc carnosine, which is really good at sort of knitting up those leaky exits and entrances, you know. So that's another good thing to do. Other things would be there's some data on the different polyphenols that are in foods. Like I mentioned quercetin, resveratrol is really great turmeric, and also omega-3 fats, which you can get from oily fish, you know, fatty fish, or you can take fish oil, obviously. So all of these things are really good. Obviously, fiber, 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 because that's going to increase healthy bacteria, which is very reparative and lowers inflammation. So those are some good things, you know, to concentrate on. And for autoimmune diseases, if somebody is listening and they have one, are there any universally helpful things or are they all kind of so different that you need to treat them really differently? You know, I think of everyone as being very different. So I'm a little bit of a detractor from (laughs) what a lot of sort of autoimmune specialists talk about. I don't believe there's one autoimmune diet. So I have a big, I'm a big stickler about that. Yes, there's tons of data that's anti-gluten and a lot of it's really good data. Should most people with autoimmune disease go off gluten for a period of time? Absolutely. Absolutely. We know that it causes leaky gut in many cases. I'm a big fan of using elimination diets, but I'm not a person who says, hey, you know, you're never going to be able to eat soy again. You know, that's bad for you. Or you're never going to be able to have dairy again. But I do love elimination diets. I think they can be super helpful. And then I really think that people, if they're able to do it, if they've gone through an elimination diet and they're not noticing any change in any of their symptoms is, is to maybe get food sensitivity testing, which can, be, which can be expensive and really has to be used with someone who knows what they're doing. Should somebody with an autoimmune disease take different actions when they're sick than somebody without it because their immune system sort of behaving in different ways? You know... People with autoimmune disease don't actually have a weakened immune response. Their immune response can be perfectly fine against, you know, bacteria and viruses and things like that. The issue is, is that many people who have autoimmune disease are on medications that may lower their resistance. So for example, prednisone, right? That's a steroid. 
is often used for flare-ups. Some people might take low doses of it, but over time, that's not good for many reasons, but it does weaken your immune response. Other things would be these, what they call biologic drugs. Um, And these are life, they can be very life-saving. So I don't, you know, I don't want to tell people they shouldn't take them because that would be incorrect, but they work specifically by shutting down mostly certain cytokines or certain these inflammatory messengers. So people may get relief, but it may put them at higher risk for certain infections. And you know, if you listen to the commercials on TV, if you watch any sort of network TV, you know, it's the one that's like, you can die, you can have this, you know, you can get TB, all this kind of stuff, right? It's like the laundry list of things that can happen to you if you take this drug, because those are immune modulators. They're coming in and they're actually suppressing parts of your immune system so that you don't attack your own tissue. But at the same time, you're having problem. you know, it can put you at risk for other things. So is there anything that you can do to support your immune system when you are on immunosuppressants? Some of the things that I that I write about that we do know can be really helpful are, for example, vitamin A is really great. Not uh, you have to be a little careful taking it because it you know high doses can be problematic, but that increases this whole set of cells that are what we call regulatory cells. They're sort of like calming, so they can actually help your autoimmune disease. The other thing is that you can use things that are naturally sort of antiviral, and that's not going to make you have a more aggressive immune response to your own tissue. So for example, there's something called lysine, which we use a lot for herpes infections. That can be helpful. You can use like the elderberry, which is fine to use with someone with autoimmune disease, and even some of those mushrooms that we talked about. So like I said, you can support yourself just like you can any, you know, you would with any other person, but you know, and then also taking probiotics, I think is also excellent for people with autoimmune disease because you're always going to be wanting to work on the gut. I don't know if this falls at all into the same category as autoimmune diseases or even what's known about it, but I would love to talk about long COVID for a second. Mm, Yeah. Is there any, like, do we know what's happening there yet? And is there anything that you would recommend people do if they're sick with COVID and they want to prevent long COVID or anything that they could do if they are already experiencing long COVID symptoms? Yes. So we don't know exactly, again, what causes it. There is thought that there is an autoimmune reaction because as I said before, is that we know that underlying a lot of autoimmune diseases, viruses are a big thing. The SARS virus, this coronavirus, same thing. So we see it a lot with the cardiovascular issues. So the heart muscle, we know that coronavirus can attack heart muscle And then we probably then develop a reaction to that and brain issues. So there's a lot of brain fog, anxiety, and then just fatigue, muscle fatigue. So there is, there are protocols floating around. I would say vitamin D really probably has some very good data. Is there a dose you're looking for for D? We've talked about it a few times, but I've heard people say that you actually want a pretty high dose, much higher than the bottle might say. Yeah. So. The best thing to do is to get a baseline, right? You know, if you live in like the Northeast or really any place in the United States and you work indoors all day long, you're not going to get a lot of vitamin D starting in like October through, let's just say April, because you're just too far away from the sun. So you can't absorb the ultraviolet rays, which is where we get our vitamin D. So we always want vitamin D, depending on the labs, like above 50, you know, say 50 to 60 is like a nice sweet spot, especially if if you have autoimmune disease. And so that 
depends on your how you absorb it, which can vary. I am not a great absorber of vitamin D, and I know that through testing, um, both genetic testing and also like I would take 2,000 of vitamin D and it wouldn't do anything for me. So if someone is really deficient, we usually recommend that they start on about 10,000 international units a day. Take that for eight weeks with food and then get rechecked if you can, and then go back to adjust it and maybe go down to about 5,000. So it really depends. But I mean, a sweet spot is about 5,000 international units, and that's not going to put you way over a safety limit or anything. And quite honestly, I don't think I've ever seen anyone have a toxic level of vitamin D. It's hard to get there. So we have vitamin D, we have quercetin. What else are we doing if we have COVID and we're perhaps trying to prevent the long COVID? Because we don't know how to prevent it otherwise. We just know that some of these extra additional vitamins, minerals, and things like that can be helpful. The other big one is glutathione. Glutathione is expensive. It's hard to absorb. And it also smells like rotten eggs. However, is a tremendous antioxidant, anti-free radical, really, really good to use. And you can use it sublingually. So they make sprays so that's better absorbed, but you can also take the precursor to it, which is something called N-acetylcysteine. It's a little bit hard to find these days because everyone knows about it. So it's always on back corner. <laughs> the other thing that's sort of crazy is that we've been using N-acetylcysteine as an over-the-counter supplement for years and years and years and years. And just within the past, I guess the past few months, the FDA has decided that they want to reclassify it as a drug. Why? I don't know. So now certain places are not, it's hard to find. So um, it's really hard to find in places like Amazon, but you can still get it. So I'm a big fan of using that too. Zinc is another one. Yeah. All of those things I think would be really, if you can have that little anti-long COVID you know, pharmacy, those are good things to focus on. And if, is that the same if you already have the symptoms of long COVID, like if you're a month or two out and you're experiencing brain fog, et cetera? Yes. Those are all good things to continue doing. There's also apparently a probiotic, which is one of those soil-based probiotics that has been studied for long COVID. They're looking at it. I cannot remember the exact name of it, but that seems to help as well. But I think if you do those things, is probably at this point the best we know. It's the best we know, really. Yeah. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Ooh, do I have something fun to talk to you about today? You may know that I am very excited about the therapeutic potential of CBD. I wrote one of the first viral articles about it years ago. And as a result of that, I'm constantly getting sent new products and research in the space. We're still learning so much, but one of the most interesting things that I've been looking into lately is the effect of CBD on our sexual health and wellness. Without getting too sciencey, we have endocannabinoid receptors, which basically means receptors that respond to cannabis all over our body, which is one of the reasons CBD can help with everything from gut health issues to achy muscles. They're widespread in the female reproductive tract, including in the uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, vagina, and vulva. This is amazing because it means that if we can get CBD to those receptors, we can drastically change the state of those areas. And the best way to get CBD to those receptors is to bypass the digestive tract and take as direct of a route as possible, which is where Foria comes in. 
Boria has an incredible collection of 100% plant-based products for intimacy, relief, and daily well-being. They are obsessive about their ingredients. Their motto is, if you wouldn't put it in your mouth, don't put it on your genitals. And they're always free of pH disruptors such as glycerin and fragrances. Their relief suppositories are absolute game changers for any pain in the vaginal region. They're absolutely amazing for anyone with endometriosis, painful cramps, or pain caused by sexual intercourse. They're super easy to use and contain just organic certified fair trade cocoa butter and 100 milligrams of CBD. They also have topical products. The Awaken Arousal Oil uses CBD in combination with eight other organic botanical extracts to help decrease pain and increase sexual pleasure. Whether you're looking to heighten your state of arousal, make your orgasm way more explosive, or take away the pain that can get in the way of intimacy, the Awaken Arousal Oil can help. Let me just read you a few things that people had to say about this oil. This has been the best product I've tried since having my son nine months ago. I've been struggling with hormone imbalance and sex has just not been fun or comfortable. Until tonight, total game changer. I feel like I finally have what I've been missing. Someone else said, we have used this twice so far and both times it has improved the quality of arousal and intimacy. If you are on the fence, try it. To start prioritizing your pleasure and support this show, you can visit www.foriawellness.com and plug in the code HEALTHIER20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase of any products. Again, that's foriawellness, F-O-R-I-A, wellness.com, and the code is HEALTHIER20. Enjoy. What are your thoughts about my sister got COVID and my friend suggested that she get one of those like vitamin IV drips to kind of help get her over any lingering symptoms. And it felt so bougie and it was incredibly expensive. But is there merit to something like that, like the vitamin IV drips? So, you know, the thing about vitamin IV drips is you can instill really high doses in a very short period of time. And, you know, they've been using vitamin C drips forever. They call them, a, well, they call them a Myers cocktail, it has a lot of really high dose vitamin C. And that does seem to help. Also, glutathione is given intravenously. And yeah, I think if you do a vitamin C glutathione drip, it's close to $200, I think, something like that. It was really expensive, but she said she went from feeling like she's like at 60% to feeling like 100%. And she's felt like that for like over a week now. And I'm like, I don't even know if I feel like I'm 100%. That sounds nice, you know? Yeah. And like B vitamins are also, they usually include those because they're really, they're really just great for energy and supporting our detoxification. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. I do think that sometimes people feel better. They're a way to really, like I said, infuse a high dose of vitamins and minerals very quickly versus you having to absorb it. And also if you're a poor absorber for some reason, if you've got gut issues and you're not able to absorb things very well, IV is a great thing to do. Okay. So nice to have and for specific situations, but you don't need to run out and spend $200 on an no, item. No, 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 no. Absolutely okay. not. Yeah. Let's do a little bit of a speed round. I want to kind of like get into different things that are good or bad or neutral for the immune system. So I would love to start out with, is there a best or worst type of workout for supporting your immune system? Good question. So all exercise is good. I would say if there's one thing that I would not recommend for people who have any sort of immune problem is excessive endurance sports. 
And the reason is, is that we know that that is going, it increases your cortisol for long periods of time. And if you're doing that day in and day out, it's going to over time sort of weaken your immunity. The other thing is that if you're doing that and you're not allowing yourself to repair, then you're sort of causing more inflammation. Because remember, every time we exercise, right, we tear muscles. Like that's how we get stronger. We do that. We also increase our cardiac ability. But you're always going to want to take time off in between. So every exercise has some benefit for you. But when you feel worse the day after you exercise and not better, that's a sign that, oh, maybe I should take a break. I feel more fatigued. Or if you get sick a lot while you're training for something. The other thing is you can cause, because I used to do a lot of running and I still run, but I did triathlons and I I definitely trained long distance. And, you know, I did some adrenal testing and my cortisol, what happened is over time, it just sort of tanked. And so I was sort of like a flat line. But also we know that you can have a lot of temporary gut issues when you're running you know, they call it the runner's trots for a reason, right? Like if you go out and you're running and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I have to go to the bathroom. And the reason is, is that you pull blood supply away from your gastrointestinal system to your large muscles because you're running or you're doing stuff like that, right? In your heart. And so you're not supposed to be digesting food at that point. And so we know that pulling blood supply away from the GI tract can over time cause some problems with more leaky gut. So yeah, no marathon training if you're like dealing with uh, like a new onset um, autoimmune problem. Like everything else is fine. Go lift some weights, go to yoga, swim in a pool, ride a bike. I mean, dance, whatever, you know, go for a four or five mile jog. But you don't want to do anything too crazy. But some exercise, like we should be getting regular exercise to support our immune health. Oh, yes, absolutely. For lots of different reasons. You know, as you sort of had it, um, talked about with the with the sauna exercise is a little bit of a stressor which is a good thing because it makes us stronger so you do want to stress the body a little bit because it actually like a muscle it gets stronger um and it does that for our immune system but also think about it most of the time we get sick we're getting something through our respiratory tract and it has been shown and they actually looked at older adults when covid sort of first broke out i think it was a british study they looked at older adults in the UK and people who ran were like runners or did some cardiovascular activities on a regular basis because they just had healthier lungs and healthier heart. They actually did a lot better. They got less frequent infections. And if they did get infections, they cleared them quicker. Amazing. Okay. What about high dose vitamin C, like the emergency packets and things like that? You know, vitamin C is really important for people to get. And I think a lot of people don't get enough of it. So we can't produce vitamin C. This is a just sort of a fun little hint, but cats can, they can actually make their own vitamin C. Humans can't. So we have to take it in from a food source. And the other thing is that vitamin C is water soluble and we use it up tremendously as a free radical scavenger. So any type of damage that's going on, any immune issues, anything, any reparative stuff. We use it to repair skin. That's why people put vitamin C on their skin, right? Because it helps cross-link collagen. So it's, and it also helps us make cortisol, which is our stress hormone. So when we're under 
a lot of stress, we actually blow through vitamin C more quickly too. And that's why you'll see those stress C packets or stress C vitamins. So to come back to the point is, you know, taking in a thousand milligrams of vitamin C really isn't that big of a deal. We probably get through that and use it. And whatever we don't use, we excrete. So one thing that is true is that you can't absorb too much vitamin C all at once in your gut. In fact, it will give you diarrhea. Okay. So it's a good thing to support ourselves, but don't overdo it because then you're not only not having positive effects, but you are inducing diarrhea. Correct. And it's just sort of wasteful, right? If you're not going to absorb it, what's What's the point point? of taking it? Right. What about dry brushing? Good question. So, you know, dry brushing is very big in Ayurveda. And it does seem to improve lymphatic drainage, and if you do it correctly. And lymphatic drainage is really, really important to our immune system because our lymph, like our immune cells track through our circulatory system, the veins and arteries and such, but it also goes through our lymphatics. And a lot of the debris and the trash and the toxins and the dead sort of stuff go into the lymphatics and then get pushed out of the body into waste. So dry brushing seems to promote lymphatic movement because lymphatic channels don't have like a a muscular wall, like an artery or something. And so it's moved a lot by our skeletal muscles. So when you're exercising or you're getting a massage, or if you're doing something like brushing, that can improve the flow of lymph. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Do you support specifically seeking out like a lymphatic massage? I know that's very trendy these days. I don't generally. I would say that unless someone is having a specific issue with lymphedema, you know, so they that means like they can't move, they, they get swelling, they get edema or um, areas that just collect fluid, they're swollen. I do then. Often when people are maybe going through you know, like a sort of a detox protocol, they're, you know, increasing their, they're changing their nutrition, they're upregulating how their liver works, you know, sometimes it's good to do that. But I wouldn't say it's something I recommend on a regular basis. Okay, this one I'm a little bit nervous about, because it's one of my favorite kind of anti sickness protocols. But what about chopped raw garlic for the Allison? Yeah, no, that's actually really good. Okay, good. I like I always get nervous when I because I'll always leave it in. I want people to know what the facts are, but I get nervous when I have something that I've been sharing for years and then I ask a doctor about it on the podcast. Okay, but can you speak to the Allison concept a little bit? Yeah. So Allison, and it's not spelled like the name, it has a C in it. Allison is like the most antibacterial, antiviral component found in garlic. And yes, when it's raw, it's best. Although some people say that black fermented garlic is also good. I don't quite honestly know enough about it, but we use Allison in its, I want to say processed form a lot of times for people with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth as protocols. It's been shown to be very helpful for certain kinds of SIBO. And just generally it's, it's great, great for a cold, Great for cardiovascular disease. I mean, it's really good for a lot of different things. But yeah, I'm a big fan of using garlic for sure. Okay, yay. (laughs) (laughs) What about oregano oil or olive leaf extract? I've seen those used for immune support a lot. 
Again, mostly it's because of antiviral properties, not because it's supporting our immune cells per se. So oregano oil is very strong antibacterial. In fact, you can overdo oregano oil. So a lot of people use oregano oil on a regular basis. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. Because it's so strong, it actually kills a lot of our good beneficial bacteria. So if you're if you're taking it because of, you know, you've got IBS or you think that you might have some sort of yeast overgrowth or whatever, that's fine to do it, but don't take it months on end. Maybe take it for two weeks, take a couple of weeks off and sort of pulse it, you know, maybe take two to three rounds of it. So that's what I, I recommend for that. And not so much with the olive leaf extract. You can take that for longer periods of time that can be very, very good for yeast and also for viruses. And there's some data showing that it might be helpful for people who have chronic Epstein-Barr virus. We're talking about a lot of sort of antiviral, antibacterial stuff. Do you have a favorite one for if we're feeling ill to reach for? Antiviral. I wouldn't say I really have a favorite. I do like ginseng and I do like ginger because I love the taste of ginger and ginger tea. So... I would say probably that. And then ginseng, especially this one specific kind called red Korean ginseng is extremely um, sort of immune promoting, immune boosting ginger, I'd say, to really know. And I know that we talked about overdoing oregano oil, but are there any other ones that we can sort of overdo? I'm thinking particularly in the context of a cytokine storm, which we touched on earlier. I'm always worried about kicking my immune system into overdrive and causing more problems than I'm solving. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they talked about that a lot with elderberry, but I think it's sort of like spitting in the wind. I don't really think like the amount elderberry has nothing against some of the cytokines. Like, I mean, it it can definitely increase it slightly. But when we have a cytokine storm, it's like a Hail Mary pass, right? What is it? Can you just walk back a little bit and tell us what's happening in our body when we have a cytokine storm? So most of us do not have a cytokine storm, right? So ever, because okay. <laughs> usually that means you're in the throes of dying. So basically when we are very sick and overwhelmed by a bacterial or viral infection, so you're going to see cytokine storms happening mostly in people that are already in the ICU, intensive care unit, and they are in a state of what's called sepsis, which is caused by cytokines and cytokine storm. These are people who are overwhelmed by infection and have such a weakened response that our, our immune system makes this Hail Mary pass that they start secreting just really, really high levels of these very pro-inflammatory cytokines. One of the big ones is IL-6. There's others. And what that does is it really activates a lot of tissue damage, which if you think about it, that then recruits more cells and more cytokines and more cells and more cytokines. And then we get into the state of what we call septic shock, where our blood pressure drops, our heart rate drops. Sometimes we even start having, we saw with COVID this happened, you get blood clots and things like that. But this can happen with other types of infections. So we've seen this in like toxic shock syndrome and things like that. It's rare. It is not something that happens to like the average person. So you shouldn't be worried about that. Okay. So like the, I, there was some media hype for a while around like taking too much elderberry and right. that causing, and yeah. that was just exactly no, hype. It's totally hype. Like you can't create that from taking elderberry. 
Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So take your elderberry. That's totally fine. Okay. Amazing. And yeah. <laughs> then could you just leave us with a little daily prescription, like one thing that we can all start doing today to support our immune system on a regular basis? You should floss. And the reason why is that we are seeing that the microbiome in our mouth and inflammation that occurs from like periodontal disease and things as we get older, or even younger, you know, root canals, blah, 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 blah drives a lot of other inflammatory diseases. So there's a link between heart disease. There's a link between Alzheimer's and brain diseases because of microbes in your mouth. So we don't often think about that. We think of like, okay, it's good to floss because you don't get infections in your mouth or you don't, you know, get cavities or whatever, but we don't think of the mouth microbiome and the state of the health of our gums and our teeth as affecting other organs, specifically things like the heart and your brain. So I would say floss. <laughs> Use I a love water that. pick, you know, all, I love the, all the good stuff, you know. We have a whole Ask the Doctor Dental Health Edition with Dr. Mark Berhenna and it really is about how much the state of our mouth impacts the state of our whole body and how that's really under discussed. So I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I think that's going to be a big thing in the future. You know, when they talk about health trends, I think, I think oral health and the rest of your body is going to be like a big health trend. <laughs> so I think so too. And it, it has, you have your own oral microbiome, like you mentioned, and I, we've talked so much about the gut microbiome, but it's, it's interesting to talk about the rest of our microbiomes and, and also everything entering your gut is entering it via mm -hmm. your mouth. Like that's exactly. where it's going first. It's one tube if you think about it, right? I mean, digestion starts in the mouth and obviously ends in the colon, but it's, it's just all one little passageway, right? <laughs> Amazing. Is there anything you'd like to kind of say in your own words about your book, your work, where people can find you? What I'd like to say about the book is that it is meant for everybody. It's not meant just for people who have sort of immune issues. It's meant to give people hope and also to sort of demystify the immune system and make it like sort of, you know, more approachable because I, I think people should know more about their immune system and you don't have to be a scientist to do that. And then probably the best place to find me is on Instagram. I am not a huge um, social media person, but that's where I am the most of the time. And, and then also at my website, which is www.modacenter.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom with us. We all really appreciate it. Thank you, Liz. This was so much fun. I hope you love this episode with Dr. Mode. I hope you came away with a lot of like tips and tricks and things that you can try out in your life, but also maybe just like a better understanding of what's actually happening with your immune system. I know I have a way better sense of like what's going on in my body. If you did love the episode, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on whatever podcast platform that you listen on. It's so helpful. It's super quick, I promise. If you can't figure out how to do it, you can do like a quick Google of like how to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can just shoot me a DM and I'll walk you through it. I promise it is not as complicated as it seems like it is. You just kind of need to know the right place to go. And it really does make a big difference in helping other people find the podcast. Of course, the number one way to support the podcast is by spreading the word. So if there's anybody in your life that you think would benefit from all of the incredible information that Dr. Mode shares in this episode, please send them a link. You can be like, hey, like I know you work with a lot of kids. This might help you support your 
your immune system, or I know you've been struggling with allergies. I know like there's some really good information in this podcast episode that might help you. It'll help them feel better. I will appreciate it massively because it'll be spreading the word and helping us all get healthier together. And you'll feel like a good person because you are a good person. You're spreading wonderful information with people in your life. So good wins all around. And if you are new here, if somebody sent you the episode, welcome. I am so glad to have you here as part of the fam. Do not forget to subscribe before you leave so that you get notified of all future episodes. We have some really, really, really good ones coming up that I'm very excited to share. So with that, I will see you next Wednesday on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, or superfoods and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out.